So if you've been with us, you know that we've been studying 1 Peter. And and uh, if you haven't been with us, welcome and we're glad to have you here. We preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we hit some pretty interesting things as we do that. And we hit them head on and we go right through them and, and, and try to do the best with them as we can. And we've seen these sort of themes develop as we've been studying 1 Peter. Themes like suffering and faith and commitment. And through the, through the middle of this, we've seen a constant theme, a constant thread running of the sovereignty of God and His love for His children. Now, I'm not going to take time here this morning to go back and cover the whole series. It's available on the podcast. It's on the website, the brand new website. Did anybody see that? Yeah, it's on there. I'd encourage you all to go back and listen to any of them that you missed. And even if there's ones that you were here for, go back and listen to them again. Because I'm convinced, I'm fully convinced that First Peter holds solid, relevant truths that apply to our lives as Christians here in the Capital Region in 2013. Some of the things that we've seen that I believe apply to us right now is that God our Father has prepared an inheritance for us, for those of us that put our faith in Him, for those of us that believe in the saving work of His Son, and that that inheritance is imperishable. It will never be destroyed that it's undefiled and it's unfading. It can't be tarnished. It can't fade away to nothing. And it's being kept in heaven for us. Truths like you and I as God's children are being protected by God's power unto our day of salvation. That we as a church, a called out assembly, a family of God, a family of believers, are a living temple or a spiritual house built on that precious cornerstone that is Jesus Christ, who we'll see on Friday this week was rejected by the modern religious teachers of His time. That we as Christians must submit, and this was a tough one for me, I'll stand right up here and say, ouch to this sermon. Lou preached very well. Did a good job. We talked about it beforehand He, you know, during the week. But great job. In our community group, I'm not here to, to uh, you know, Punk on anybody's community group, but ours is awesome. And, uh, and uh, we had some good conversation about this. We as Christians must submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. In our government, in our workplace, in our communities, and in our church. Up to that point, we, got, we must submit to those authorities up to that point where their requirements become opposite to the requirements of God, go against the laws of God, the requirements of God. We've seen, I hope, in a way that has vitally changed many relationships in this room, that we as husbands need to love our wives. Love them as Christ loves the church. That we need to stand up and provide for our families. And wives, Christian wives, you need to submit to your husbands. Not just when they're right, but all the time. Using Christ as the example that He submitted to His Father. We saw last week, Lou preached how our relationship with Jesus can change the way we live. It can change our lifestyle. That 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 change in lifestyle will be noticed and can lead to persecution. We saw... One of the points that he made last week that just 
stuck home to me was that we as Christians, we need to be in constant prayer. We need to be on our knees before the Lord seeking wisdom and guidance and comfort in every situation. And throughout our study to this point, we've seen this reoccurring theme that those who bear the name of Christ, we should not be surprised, as our text will tell us today, at the prospect of suffering. So let's read our text together. If you'd open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. New Testament, later in the New Testament, if you get to the maps, you've gone too far. Revelation, back up a little bit more. We've got 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to start in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the Gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Father in Heaven, as we open Your Word today, as we look at this passage, as we look at suffering, as we look at judgment, and as we look at Your faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Creator who holds us in His hands, Lord, Your Word is powerful. It has the ability to change lives. Holy Spirit, You are welcome in this place. Please fill us. Please empower us. Please move in us as Your Word is preached and change us today. Let us not leave this place today, Father, the same that we came in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, somebody changed me. There we go. Thanks. So, we're going to start right in verse 12 and we're going to dig right in. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This phrase that, that Peter uses here, the fiery trial to test you, is... The language that he uses there seems to indicate a refiner's fire. He's talking about the furnace that a metallurgist would put gold or silver into to melt it down so that the dross, the lead, the impurities could be drawn out of it and what would come out would be a solid, pure block of gold or silver. And I don't know you all. I know many of you. I know some of the struggles that some of you have gone through recently, some of the trials that some of you have been through recently. I know some of the trials that some of you are going through right now. I don't know all of you, and I don't know the trial that you're in at this moment, but I want you to understand one thing. I want you to know that none of us here in leadership at King's Chapel are immune to pain and suffering, and we don't in any way in any of these sermons intend to diminish or belittle what it is that you're going through right now. In this verse, Peter says that Christians, as followers of Christ, we should expect these kinds of fiery trials. We should recognize 
as followers of Christ, as children of a sovereign God, that these trials are not arbitrary, that they're not somehow incidental, that they are quite often the product of living in a sinful and broken and fallen world. But God has not forgotten us. He's not dismissed us. And in His sovereignty, He's working on us. Even working through these trials to strengthen our faith, to turn our eyes back to Him and to remind us that we are fully dependent on Him. You know, how often do you come up to me or do we have a conversation and we say to each other, you know, I feel the closest to the Lord, most dependent on Him, most held in His hand, most loved by Him when everything's going easy. When I'm on cruise control and life is good. No, most often it's when the things that we depend on, the things that, are, that we hold dear uh, inside of us, those things that we worship, that we put on the throne of our heart instead of Jesus Christ, when those things get stripped away and broken away, that we fall on our knees at the foot of the cross, humbled, and return to that place where we recognize that God is sovereign <clears throat> and that we depend wholly on Him for everything. John Piper, who you might have heard before, heard of before, when preaching on this passage some years ago, said it this way, <clears throat> So much has to be burned up within us We are all imperfect and there are not going to be any imperfect people in heaven. And a lot of God's process of getting us ready for heaven is to burn the hell out of us. And He will get it out of us. And we will be found blameless at the judgment. So here Peter, writing to the believers in in Asia, in Central Asia, where we've looked at the historical accounts, these believers were already in suffering. They were in trial. They were in tribulation. They were being persecuted by their, their communities. And they were preparing. They were about to come into <clears throat> some of the most horrendous persecution that Christians have ever known. That Lou has recounted very well as we've gone through here. Nero was about to torture Christians in ways that we can't even really imagine happening today in this country. Peter says that they, and not just they, but us, all Christians, should not be surprised by fiery trials. <clears throat> now, if you happen to flip on the TV this morning when you were getting ready to come here, or if you just rolled out of bed and flipped on the Christian radio in the car as you're coming down here, you might, have, <clears throat> you might hear a little bit different message than that. <clears throat> There's a false teaching out there being taught by false teachers, that's false teaching, that says that if you have enough faith, life is going to be easy. It will be filled of the blessings of God and that if you're experiencing difficulty in your life, that A, you're either living in sin or B, you just don't have enough faith. Anybody heard this? It's not just me, is it? If you listen to that, if you subscribe to or prescribe to that kind of teaching it can get you pretty depressed pretty quick, or at least it does me, because what you have to admit is, what you have to accept is, that if you've ever gone through anything bad in your life, that A, it's caused by your sin, or B, you just don't have enough faith. I find that troublesome. But you know what? It's not scriptural. And I don't want you to take my word for it. 
Let's test it. Let's test it by what we see in the Bible and see if that kind of teaching is accurate. Anybody ever heard of Job? Historically, the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. It was the first book that was written down. It wasn't the first book that was written down, I'm sorry. But timeline-wise, when it occurred, it occurred before anything else that we have written down, except for creation. So yeah, historically it's the oldest book. But Job had everything. He had crops, he had livestock, he had family, he had money, had it, had it all going on. Had bling. And then in the blink of an eye, seemingly, it was all gone. Crops destroyed, livestock slaughtered, household goods and servants stolen and killed by raiding parties, and children dead, wiped out. Family wiped out. Job's friends came and told him. Uh, Job's body himself, sick, destroyed, boils. Job's friends came and told him the same thing that those preachers tell us today, that this was a product of sin in his life or a lack of faith. But that's not what the book of Job tells us. The book of Job, if we look at it, if we study it, tells us that it wasn't Job's sin or a lack of faith that were the source of that trial. In fact, God's own words about His servant Job in the first chapter of the book, He describes Job this way. He says, My servant Job, there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Is that how you describe somebody trapped in sin or who doesn't have enough faith? No. What about David? No. I'm kind of partial to David. He's a passionate man. man who acts and then thinks. And I might fall into that category. He's a warrior. Somebody that I can identify with. And a king. Not something I've ever had the opportunity to do yet, but I'm hopeful. (laughs) A man that God describes as a man after his own heart. A man whose faith in God was is credible. It's tangible. You can see it over and over again. The, and he's the author of many of the Psalms. Songs of rejoicing, songs of faith, songs of praise to our Almighty and Sovereign God. Now, not by any means a man without sin. You know, I said he acted first and then thinks. And we can look at many of the trials that David went through in his life and recognize that those were consequences that were brought on him by his sinful actions. I don't know anybody here can identify with that. Can, I mean, I think all of us can. I think all of us have been in places in our lives where we suffer consequences for stupid decisions that we make. And I know... I'll, I'll just, let me just leave it there. So, <clears throat> there is, and that's different, living up under the consequences. But we can also see that David went through things in his life that were not the consequences of his sin. And he certainly didn't have a lack of faith. He wrote many of the Psalms, and one that I was brought back to in my study of this was Psalm 71. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, uh, to you right now, but for you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust. O Lord, from my youth upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are He who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Sound like a man with little faith? O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. 
but I will hope continually and I will praise You yet more and more. My mouth will tell of Your righteous acts, of Your deeds of salvation all the day. Sound like a man trapped in sin or, or with little faith? Not at all. And of course, I think probably the best example of, of this being a false teaching in Scripture is Christ, is Christ Himself. If you have any question as to whether or not Jesus Christ went through trial and tribulation in this life, please come Friday night. We are going to have a, what to me is a troubling presentation of what Jesus was willing to go through to earn our redemption, to, to pay for our sin. And it was, by, it was a fiery trial. He was born in a stable. Raised the son of a carpenter. Blue-collar laborer. As an adult, he was often homeless. Followed around by smelly fishermen. I don't, I don't know. In, in Hebrews 4.15, it says that Jesus was tried in every way that we are and sinned not. And that tried is from the same Greek root as the fiery trial that we have right here. It says that He was put through the same fiery trials that we are and He sinned not. So if Jesus was subject to the fiery trial, how is it that we here today should expect to be exempted from it? We can't. And I think this is a good point to point out that Jesus did expect fiery trial. And not only did He expect fiery trial, but He also prepared for it. I think we should follow His example in that. Lou talked about it a little bit last week, and we're going to see it again. The night that Jesus was... that imminent trial was right in front of him. He was about to be arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what's he doing? He's down on his knees praying. He's talking to his Father. And you know what? There were three disciples. He had, he had twelve disciples. He made community. Community is important. And he took the twelve and he made three. Anybody at the men's breakfast yesterday morning? Hands, show of hands, yeah. Bill taught us that it is vitally important for us to identify those individuals in our lives that we can become close to for the purposes of community, to be interdependent, to be responsible and accountable to each other, and to lift each other up, and to look around and see those who need to be lifted up. Community was vitally important to Jesus. He took the three, James, John, and Peter, and He said, come and pray with Me. And He went a little bit further and got on his knees before his father and prayed. So he was preparing himself. And Peter was there that night in the garden. He saw that example. Jesus encouraged him to pray. And what did Peter do? He fell asleep. And then a few hours later, his fiery trial came upon him. And people accused him of being in cahoots with Jesus. And what did he do? He denied Christ three times because he wasn't prepared. But Peter learned from that example because he wrote this book under the control of the Holy Spirit and he says here, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And this is a command. This is, the way it's stated, this isn't just a, you know, when your brother runs around the corner when you're a little kid and you go, oh, I wasn't surprised. You know, just a little bit, maybe. Now this is, this is you... Be not surprised. Be in a place where you will not be surprised. In fact, he's telling us that we should be preppers. Christian preppers. I don't know. It's 
If anybody's seen the show, and I haven't seen the show, I've just seen the, the pre- previews to it, but he's, Peter here is not talking about dried meat in a closet and drinking water tablets and ammo in the basement. Although that's not necessarily a bad thing to have, I guess, but if, if you watch the show. But. What he's saying is that we need to be prepared to face these fiery trials, and we need to use the truths of Scripture to prepare ourselves. We need to be in the Word of the Lord. The psalmist says, Your Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against You. God has given us His Word in completion. Complete. You know, Almighty God wrote us a book and gave us everything we need for life and godliness right here. We need to be in it all the time. We need to be in prayer. As Luke said last week, pray about everything. Paul said, pray continuously. We need to be in community. We need to be attached to other believers in a real way, living life together in a way that we can bear each other's burdens. Romans 12.15 tells us that when somebody in our community, in our close-knit group of friends is happy, we should rejoice with them. And when they are suffering, we should suffer with them. You see, if we look at the very next verse, we move forward into verses 13 and 14, we see what the product of being prepared for the fiery trial looks like. The fruit of being prepared is that we can rejoice. It says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, when the fiery trial comes upon us, when we're prepared to be put into the refiner's furnace, when our eyes are fixed firmly on Jesus, who is our example, when we recognize that that we are held firmly in God's hand and that these trials are not arbitrary, but are in fact not even outside the plan of God, what is the result? The result is that in the midst of this suffering, we can still rejoice. Verse 13 tells us that our sanctified response to suffering should be singing and glorifying God. That's what that word rejoice means. Now this seems contradictory. I understand that. And it's hard for me even to get my head wrapped around it completely. But let's consider this for a moment. How is it that when we live a life that produces a lifestyle that the world finds objectionable, or that when we call our neighbors through the power of the Gospel to repentance because of their sin, or our family members, or our co-workers, and our speaking of the Gospel is seen as an offense or taken poorly, and we become insulted or ridiculed by that group of people, How is it that we could possibly have joy or be rejoicing? It's a great question. One I think deserves an answer, so let's try to break this down. I think a principle that we used this summer might help us a little bit in our summer series on the the Beatitudes. Remember, we saw over and over again in there that those of us who put our faith in the redeeming power of the blood of Christ were defined as being blessed. And that if we were in fact in that family of the blessed, that there would be certain traits 
that would then naturally be exhibited in our lives. That we the blessed would be poor in spirit. That we the blessed would mourn over our own sin and the sin in the world. That we who belonged in this group of the blessed would see exhibited in our lives meekness. And that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness. And that we could use the presence of those traits in our lives as a kind of test to see were we in fact in that group, the blessed. I think there's a similar truth here. I think we can work backwards from the back in and look at it. Peter says that if we recognize that Jesus is coming back, that He's going to rule in might and glory, that when He returns in glory and power, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that He is Lord. If that thought, if that understanding of Jesus coming back and redeeming all things and returning that perfect peace, that shalom that was in the Garden of Eden before sin came into the world. If just thinking about that today makes us rejoice, think how much more we'll rejoice when it comes to pass. When it's actually what's happening. When it's actually functioning. It's awesome, right? And Peter says here, if we truly believe that, if the prospect of that coming to pass isn't just some intellectual exercise that we played in our brains. But it's something that we believe, that we have faith in, grabs us emotionally, it'll change our hearts. It'll change the way we respond. We'll also understand that it's the brokenness and sin of this world, in this world, that caused our Jesus to have to suffer at the hands of sinful men be tortured, beaten, tormented, and crucified on that Roman cross. Understanding that, having that in our heart, change the way we are. How can we then not rejoice when we are considered faithful enough to Jesus to be treated the same way? If your faith, if my faith is that Jesus is going to return and that produces rejoicing in us, then the fact that our lives demonstrate Christ enough to cause the same world that caused Him suffering also cause us suffering, that should produce rejoicing in us. And I want to point out real quickly here, this is not a human response. This is not a normal, natural emotion. It's only possible in faith. When we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit of the living God, Peter says, when we are reviled for the Gospel, we are blessed. Right there. Because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory and God rests on us or upon us. More literally, what he's saying is that we recognize how blessed we are in the midst of our fiery trial because the Holy Spirit of our glorious God fills us and envelops us. You know, when Jesus left this earth to return to the right hand of God His Father, He's told His disciples to wait for the Comforter to come. Let me ask you this question. Why would the followers, the disciples, of an all-powerful, sovereign, holy God need a Comforter? I'll tell you why. Because the same world that tried, tormented, and eventually tortured Jesus, we're going to do the same thing. He's going to definitely do the same thing to His disciples. 
Let me ask you this question, Christian. Today, have you ever felt empowered by the Holy Spirit of God? Has, have you recently? Have you been comforted by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Have you seen active in your life the power and strength of the living God because of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God? If not, let me propose to you that possibly the reason is that you haven't stepped outside your comfort zone for the Gospel recently. You see, if you're not putting your faith to the test, if you're not stepping outside of that comfort zone for the sake of the Gospel, for the purpose of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, Really? Seriously? Do you need a comforter? Family, if you want to experience the comfort promised in that verse to us, stand up. Step outside the wall. Stand firm. In word and in deed, represent Christ to your community. And when the fiery trial comes, because it will, because of your testimony, be prepared in faith, rejoicing, knowing that Jesus is coming back. And until He does to rule in power and in glory, we have that Holy Spirit of God living within us. In fact, if the prospect of Christ's returning does not produce both rejoicing in us and a lifestyle that aligns us with Him, which in turn will sooner or later cause us to suffer for our testimony of Him, then we need to consider what our faith truly is. What is it we really believe in? And then, Peter having laid out for us that our faith will lead to a lifestyle that makes us a target of trial, he, he moves on to draw a line for us between the kind of suffering that comes as a result of our faith in Christ and the suffering that we may be enduring as a result of the consequences of our own sin, our own stupidness, our own mistakes. He goes on and he says in verse 15, but, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There are certainly consequences to be paid for sin in our lives. When we willfully disregard God's moral law, we're going to be held accountable. Either by the authorities that God has placed over us or by God Himself. And that's going to result likely in some kind of suffering. And that kind of suffering, suffering due to our own sins, is not the fiery trial necessarily that he's speaking of here. It's not the fiery trials that make us aware of our place in the family of God. Not the fiery trials that we will rejoice in because we recognize we're sharing in the suffering of Christ because Christ knew no sin. Not the trials that the Holy Spirit of God will comfort us as we pass through. But these trials rather should cause us to fall broken and repentant at the foot of the cross. Turn our hearts and minds back to the Gospel. Back to Jesus. Return us to that place that we need to be in. That being said, even those trials, even those sufferings, are still not somehow outside the knowledge and the purpose of our loving Father and God. He in His sovereignty, mercy and grace, is fully capable of turning bending, as Lewis said before, the, even these trials, based in the consequences of our own defiance, into something wonderful and beautiful that He uses to work on us, to change us. 
And Peter, having drawn this very hard line between the suffering as a result of our sin and the suffering for the cause of Christ, suffering fiery trials because of our demonstration in word and in deed of the Gospel in a sinful and rebellious world, he says very clearly, almost as if for emphasis, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And I don't want you to miss this. This is, this is very important. Please, if you don't take anything else away from this today, take this. Peter says that carrying the name Christian should mean something. It says that if we're doing the Christian thing correctly, that the world has so completely and obviously rejected Jesus will hate us because of our commitment to Christ and will cause us to suffer. Peter says we should not be ashamed by this. But, but simply by the fact that we are being persecuted for, for carrying the name of Christian is glorifying to God. Family, that's why, that's why we're here. Our purpose... Excuse me. <clears throat> Lost my voice there for a second. Our purpose in life, distilled down to its simplest form, is that we're here on this planet, in this country, in this community, for, or wherever you might be listening to the podcast. Or... <clears throat> we're here for the purpose of glorifying God. And Peter says here that when we carry the name of Christ before an unbelieving and persecuting world, in the power and strength provided to us by the indwelling Holy Spirit, that God is glorified by that. Is that I mean, that's awesome. That's empowering to me. That, that knowing that just carrying that name is glorifying to God. Doing it in a God-glorifying... That we are... If we take the Gospel to an unrepentant world and they reject us because of it, that, that carrying that name Christian, being labeled that way, is glorifying to God. So let's stand strong in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us bear without shame the name of Christ. And let's begin to make the name Christian mean something again. And why is it so important for us to do that? Why is it so important for us to make the name Christian mean something again? To testify before an unrepentant world the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? Peter tells us in the next verse, he says it's so important because judgment is at hand. Verses 17 and 18, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, I know judgment's not a very popular subject these days, especially not with that group that I was talking about earlier, teaching about easy and, you know, gold-plated Cadillacs if you just have enough faith. But since we're a church that believes in preaching through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, when we hit a verse like this, we work right through it, wade right in. So let's see what Peter's telling us. Peter says... It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment begins here, in God's own house. God's going to clean house and make sure that His church is pure before He turns His attention to those that reject Him completely. 
Wayne Grudem, in his commentary on this passage, points out that this is a theme that we can find throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, in books like Ezekiel and Malachi, the prophets proclaim that the judgment will start at the temple. It starts at the house of God. So it should not surprise us at all when Peter says here that again, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God and extend out from there. I'm afraid that here in America, a country known to the world as a Christian nation, though obviously we are not, a place where 80%, if you take polls on the street, 80% of people still identify themselves as Christian. That there are many in that group. There are many, there may even be some here today that are don't that don't have a place in the house of God. They don't belong to the family of God. They're playing a game or living a lie or simply are ignorant, truly ignorant of what it means to be a Christian because nobody ever told them. They just identify themselves that way because they always have. What about you today? Are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ? That's what that word means. Or would your family identify you that way? What about your coworkers? What about your schoolmates? If I went to your place of work or to your school and I took a poll, how would those people that you spend your day with identify would you identify you? Would they identify you as a Christian, as a follower of Christ? Have you ever done enough or said enough that they truly know who Christ is or even what a follower of His should look like? Not that any of us are going to get it perfect. Not that any of us are going to be the, the perfect living example of the Gospel all the time. But family, we should be easily identifiable by our testimony, both in word and in deed. Now I want to make it clear. It's not how we live in front of our community that saves us. Please don't take it that way. But it works the other way around. If we truly recognize the immense value of the salvation that we've been granted freely through grace as a gift, having nothing to do with us, that absolutely will change us from the inside out. And we'll desire to live a life that's glorifying to God, the God that made that sacrifice for us. You know, if you're not grateful for what's been done for you by God, either you don't sufficiently recognize the holiness and perfectness of God, or you don't recognize your own sinfulness. Or maybe some combination of the two. You see right here in our passage, Peter makes this abundantly clear. Verses 17 and 18 are kind of a parallel or redundant statement. He says in 17 that those who belong to the family of God are those who have been obedient to the Gospel. And he refers to those who will be saved in 18 as the righteous. So very very clearly right before us, those who are righteous have been made so by the Gospel, not by the actions of the person. So in short, those who truly belong to the household of God 
and who will survive this imminent judgment of God are those who have been made righteous by their faith in the Gospel. This is the most basic truth of Christianity and what should define us that bear the name of Christ. Those of us that bear the name of Christ. Peter says imminent judgment will start right here within the household of God which once and for all will remove from the household of God those who have not been made righteous through Christ and then spread from there out into the rest of the world. A world that has rejected Him. And understanding that those who do truly belong in the household of God have gotten there because of the work of Christ, not through something we did or had to offer God that made Him want to come near to us or like us or love us. And being convinced that if we understand the value of the free gift that's been given, the result will be a change in our hearts. They'll be broken by our sin, overflow with the mercy and the love of Christ, that He would go to the cross, as we're going to see again on Friday night, for us. This change inside of us should be so life-altering that our lifestyles will change. The communities we live in and work will have no choice but to identify us as Christians. And when they do that, followers of Christ, because they rejected Christ and the free gift He offers, they will also reject us. This will be painful. This will cause us suffering. But God doesn't leave us there. Through Peter, he reminds us in the very next verse that he is sovereign and faithful and he has our backs. Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Remember, he's told us we need to be prepared to suffer. We talked about what that preparation looks like. It's accomplished through time in the Scripture, time on our knees in prayer, supporting Christian community that strengthens us. He reminded us earlier that we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the glorious Holy Spirit of God. And we know that because of that, we have power and strength and comfort from the Holy Spirit. And now He reminds us that God is sovereign and He is faithful. That He holds us in His hands. That our worldview must be different from the the view of the world around us. That our reward and our inheritance in the family of God is secure. And somehow, in a way that is is beyond my comprehension, that, that our sufferings in Christ in the face of a broken and sinful world is part of His will for us. Folks, please hear me now. God is not the author of sin. That's not what I'm trying to say here. But He is completely capable of taking the sinful and painful circumstances of our lives and bending them to the beautiful purposes of His perfect will. Romans 8.28 is clear about that. We've we've spoken on this before, but I like this is one of my favorite verses. If you're in my community group, you know that. Because it's awesome. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Not our purposes, His purposes. And Peter finishes by telling us in verse 19 here that we should see this imminent suffering because of our living testimony of the Gospel, this rejection by those in our communities because we call them to repentance, 
And we should entrust ourselves, our future, to Almighty God. God who has written our names in His book of life before the foundation of the world. And despite the fiery trial, despite the rejection, despite the prospect of pain and suffering, we should continue to let our faith in Christ shine. Do good while doing good. Peter says, trust God, continue doing good. This means continue being that testimony in word and deed. That testimony that Christ demonstrated for His disciples and for us. And then, and then even commanded us to go and do likewise. Go into all the world and make disciples of men. Teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. As it says in Matthew 5.16, another favorite verse of mine, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Some are going to reject us. Some are going to glorify God. We don't know which. We need to be the testimony. So as I close today, I just want to leave you with this thought, family. God is in control. God is in control. We are not. Those who persecute us and reject us because of our stance for the Gospel are not. God is. God loves us and guarantees those that have put their faith in Him eternal life with Him where there will be no suffering. Let us rest in that promise, family. Let us live from this day forward like the name Christian that we carry really means something. Father, thank You for this opportunity to open Your Word and share. I know there are many in this room who are currently in circumstances in their lives that cause pain and suffering. We live in a sinful and broken world. Father, You've called us to live a life of faith. A life based in the understanding that You are, that You are sovereign, and that You are over all. Jesus, You are coming back. You came here as a suffering servant as we're going to see again on Friday. You suffered, just like many of us are suffering today. But then You defeated sin. You defeated suffering. You hung on the cross and paid the price for our sin and then God the Father said that the payment that You had applied for us was sufficient. And He raised You from the dead on the third day which we're going to celebrate next Sunday. Lord, thank You for that truth. Wrap us in Your hands. Hold us. Comfort us. Fill us with Your Spirit. Empower us. Cause us to be eloquent in word and deed as we testify the truth of the Gospel before our communities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.